Good morning. I hope everyone has been enjoying this series. I want to start by making a statement. I hope you will agree with it, but if you disagree with it, that's fine. Uh, You're allowed to have a different opinion, but I believe if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith in him, or if you're considering Christianity, you need to understand a fundamental principle when it comes to the Christian faith. So here it is. The bedrock of the Christian faith is the person of Jesus as revealed in the Bible. The bedrock of the Christian faith is the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Bible. Not your own opinion about Jesus, not what somebody told you about him, not what you think might be true as, the, as revealed in the Bible. But Jesus is the essential reality. Without Jesus, we have nothing. This is what it says in the Bible about Jesus in the book of Ephesians. Jesus Christ himself is the most important stone. He is the chief cornerstone in the building. The whole building is held together by him. Your faith, your life, the world, the church, everything is held together by the reality of Jesus Christ as revealed to us in the Bible. So this is what it says in Isaiah. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. The Bible is referred to as God's word. So if Jesus is the central reality of the Christian faith as revealed in the Bible, which we believe is clear and consistent, then it ought to stand up under any kind of scrutiny. Indeed, Christianity and the Bible kind of beg us to ask some difficult questions about it. Honest questions, intellectual questions, not straw man arguments, not false attacks, but honest intellectual critique. Christianity and the Bible invite us to those things because if it's truth, it's not worried about being investigated, looked at, examined. Truth is never, 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 never afraid to be examined. Now, let me put a caveat on that. A caveat on that. I am not practicing law. I'm not talking about going under cross-examination in a courtroom. You may be standing on truth, but you get a tricky little lawyer up there and he makes you eat your lunch and you're telling the truth and you end up in jail. So please don't say the pastor said, I should always go on, you know, and and tell the truth. I'm not talking about that kind of exam. I'm talking about honest intellectual examination of the facts. Truth is never afraid of that because if you shine the light on truth, it just reveals more truth. But when it's lie, when it's innuendo, when it's falsehoods and you shine the light on it, all of a sudden it disappears. And so that's what we've been doing in this series is examining some of the claims of the Bible and looking at it um, with the idea that somehow we have outgrown our need for God, that science has disproved God. So we started by looking at the uh, creation of the universe, the origins of the universe. And we've learned that through recent and, and current scientific discovery, all of the best scientific minds What they reveal to us, if we look at it unbiasedly, it doesn't point us away from the existence of God. It points us to the existence of God. We talked last week about the creation of the earth and life on the earth. And again, what we found is that scientific discovery supports the biblical narrative. 
It doesn't say, oh, the creation story is found in Genesis. It's just a fairy tale. If we look at both the creation story and science critically and unbiasedly. So now here this morning, we're going to look at an area where many, many, many people feel that science discredits Christianity. That somehow the, the science whether it's archaeology or any other form of science, has categorically and definitively disproved the Bible. And a lot of people believe that. They feel that the thinking, the research has been settled and that the Bible has been found wanting. And as a result of that, if you hold to the Bible, you're naive, you're uninformed, you're unengaged intellectually, you're simply holding on to fairy tales and bedtime stories. But what if the people who say the Bible has been disproved by science themselves are not engaged intellectually? What if they've approached the whole thing with a predetermined outcome and so they've looked at the whole thing biasly? What if there's more than we realize? And what if you're a Bible believer? What if you're a Christian? What if you hold to the Bible, but you have never looked at it critically? You've never examined it. You've never asked the hard questions. You simply say, I have faith. Listen to me. I understand. Ultimately, it comes down to faith. We need faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I understand all that, but our faith is meant to be rooted in trust, on truth, the truth that God's word is consistent and reliable, that what we're reading are the words that God intended, that not, not just hoping that somehow, some way, somewhere, somebody got it right, and I I'm just, I'm just have faith that, no, God wants us to have certainty because he tells us about his word in the book of 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, God wants us to have a certainty that his word is true, sure, and reliable. So this morning, we're going to look at, um, I guess I would call them five questions that people ask when it comes to uh, the, the reliability of the Bible. There may be other questions, but these seem to cover the, the, the major areas that people bring up. And they may not, you may not have heard them worded this way. You may ask them differently, but I think they, they're kind of all-encompassing. So the first question is this. How can I believe the Bible when there are so many different versions? How can I believe the Bible when there are so many different versions of the Bible? Now, when people ask that, what they are typically asking is why are there so many translations of the Bible? Now, biblical translations, um, there, are, there are a lot of them. And if you've been around Hickory Ridge or, or even here this morning, you'll see, if you join us online, you've probably noticed that I don't stick to one translation of the Bible. I use multiple translations of the Bible. Now, you may say, I don't even know what thou meanest. So, let me give you an example. So uh, I'm going to put up some different uh, Bible references. And when I put a Bible reference up, you'll always see on the bottom left hand, uh, or my left hand, your right hand, by the bottom corner, uh, a reference. And it looks something like this. And here's a bunch of different ones. Isaiah 40, NIV. 
That's the translation, New International Version, Ephesians 4.28, TLB, the Living Bible, 2 Peter 3.8, New Living Translation, Ecclesiastes 7.20, ESV, English Standard Version, Romans 6, 1 and 2, Common English Bible. All of those are just designations for translations. The reason I include that is A, because some of them have copyright issues. Secondarily, and probably even more important, I want you, if you're reading in a Bible and the words are slightly different, to know why. Oh, he's reading from a different translation. But a translation is simply taking um, words from one language to another, from, from one written language to a different written language. And in, 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 in scholarship, in academics, there's a, a whole field for this. It's called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is, what it means is the science of interpretation. And it is a science. There's steps, there's processes, there are rules that have to be followed. A good translation of the Bible is done by a group of scholars who follow these rules. And so they take all of that. Now, the Bible originally was primarily written in two languages. The Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. And as we talked last week, they were written by Hebrew authors to a Hebrew audience. So what these scholars do is they take the original language, the original culture, uh, customs, traditions, settings. They take all of that. And as a group, following these principles, they translate it to our understanding. But any writing, even outside the Bible, any writing that was written originally in a different language, and you're reading in English, is by definition a translation. The writings of Homer, of Virgil, of Dostoevsky, of Rousseau, those are all, if you're reading them in English, they're all translations. And so uh, don't freak out that there's different translations. But you say, but there's not a bunch of translations of Rousseau. Why are there so many translations of the Bible? That's a great question. The reason there's so many translations of the Bible is because language is always changing. Language is not fixed. Unless it's a dead language, it's dynamic. It's changing. Words change. Uh, cultural understanding changes. How we use a word changes. The proper definitions change. And so what made sense linguistically 50, 60, 100, 500 years ago doesn't make sense linguistically today. I mean, not that many decades ago, if you called someone gay, you meant they were happy. Now, if you call someone gay, it's because they're a homosexual. Words change. Uh, think about, um, oh, here's one, spam. <laughs> spam used to just be some type of meat product in a tin can. Now it's unwanted emails, texts, and phone calls. Uh, wicked. Wicked used to simply mean evil, but now if you're from Boston, you're wicked good. Uh, so wicked can be bad or wicked can be good, right? Trolling, streaming, followers, they all mean different things than they did 50 years ago. Think about this. Who would have thought 
that we would have an inventory issue with new cars because of a shortage of chips. <laughs> you, you tell that to a Ford, you know, model chips, potato chips have nothing to do with cars, no, microchips. So language changes. So when it comes to the English translation of the Bible, probably the most well-known one in history is the King James Version. So let me just give you a little background on the King James Version. In the uh, early 1600s, King James I commissioned an English translation of the Bible. It was translated into the modern vernacular of the time. And it was completed in 1611, and it became known as the authorized King James Version because it was authorized, it was commissioned by King James. It doesn't mean it's more authoritative. It just means it was commissioned by King James. And it was, again, in the language of the time, so it's full of thee and thou and other words and phrases that we don't use today and quite frankly can be very um, difficult to understand. But there's nothing that makes the King James Version more inspired. Linguistically, absolutely, it is majestic. It, it is poetic in style. Uh, culturally, it has had a huge impact historically on the Western uh, world. Absolutely. But theologically, there's nothing more holy or sanctified about the King James Version. Indeed, if you read it and you don't understand it, it can be more confusing and less helpful. So there are new modern translations. And if Jesus doesn't come back and the world continues in the years and decades to come, there'll be new updated translations. As a matter of fact, they have new updated translations of the King James Version. So that's why there's so many different versions. But that leads to uh, the next question. Okay, great. I understand why there's different translations. There's different versions. But... How do I know that what they're translating is correct? How do I know that the source material they are translating from is accurate? I mean, how do I know it's really the words of Paul or Moses or Peter or Jeremiah? And that's an excellent question. And it's a fair question to ask. It's a question that ought to be asked. And it's a question that is answered in a field of science called paleography, which is the study of ancient manuscripts and writings. And the, the basic idea is this. The certainty of ancient writings is determined by the number of manuscripts available to examine. Very, uh, I don't know if there's any, but if there are, it's extremely few uh, ancient writings. We have the original writing, but we have copies of the original. And so scholars will take as many uh, pieces of these manuscripts, a whole manuscript, normally it's fragments, they'll take those and they'll be able to look at them to ascertain the certainty of which the original writing was. Now, the closer in age, the closer in time that these manuscripts are found to what is believed to be the time of the original writing, the more uh, veracity it has, the more uh, certainty it has, the more sense of this is accurate. So let's look at a few um, examples. So uh, if you've ever heard of a writing called uh, The Gaelic Wars by Caesar, there are about nine, maybe 10 uh, manuscript evidence 
of, of that writing. The oldest one dates 900 years after Caesar's years after death. Uh, Plato. Plato's writings, there are about, again, nine to ten manuscript evidence, oldest of which is 1,400 years after Plato's death. But with those fragments of writings, scholars, experts, take them, compare them. Are they consistent? Is what one said what the other said? Is, is it, and with all that comparing and studying, Almost universally, every expert, every scholar agrees that what we have in those writings is an accurate reflection of the original writings. So now, how does the Bible stack up? What kind of fragments and, and manuscript evidence do we have for the Bible? Well, unfortunately, we don't have nine or ten fragments for the Bible. For the New Testament, we have over 5,800 pieces of manuscript evidence for the Old Testament, or for the New Testament. The original writing was in Greek. We have some that date within 50 years of the original writing. And we have one that they believe probably dates within 25 years, uh, known as the Magdalene Papyrus. And it's, uh, it, it contains sections from the book of Matthew. So there's great manuscript evidence for the New Testament, what about the Old Testament? There is an abundance of it with discoveries such as the Dead Sea Scroll uh, that was discovered in, I think, 1947, um, which contained uh, sections of every book of the Old Testament except the book of Esther. Um, but there, there's other recordings of the book of Esther. Uh, we have manuscript evidence for nearly every uh, section of the Old Testament. And what that tells us and what scholars have been astonished by is not that we have the evidence for it, but when you compare it, when you hold it up, when you scrutinize it like you would any other historical document, not trying to come to a preconceived uh, determination, but you look at it honestly, they are shocked with the consistency. It is, it is almost um, scary for lack of a better term, how consistent it is. Scholars are amazed. They, some scholars, it led some scholars to say, God must have been preserving the text. There's no other reasonable explanation that, that manuscripts copied time after time after time over centuries would show no significant deviations. So what does that tell us? That not only is the Bible a reliable spiritual document, it's a reliable historical document. Without a doubt, the Bible is the most well-supported ancient document. There, hands down, it is the most well-supported ancient document. So it's been translated, and it's been translated from reliable source material. But that leads to the next question. Okay, great. It's been translated, and it's been translated from reliable source documents. But... Is what it's translating historically accurate? Is the Bible historically true? I mean, okay, somebody wrote a fairy tale and it's been passed down through generations and the fairy tale has been preserved, but it doesn't make it true. And again, that's an excellent question because there is a lot of things that the Bible talks about that there is no outside historical archaeological evidence to support. 
But just because there hasn't been outside historical archaeological evidence found to support it doesn't mean it won't be. So let me give you uh, some examples. Um, In the book of Genesis, there are two cities that are mentioned, Sodom and Gomorrah. And it talks about those cities and it says God destroyed them by raining fire and brimstone and burning sulfur down from heaven. Well, for the longest time, there was no outside historical evidence that these cities existed. So skeptics would say, hey, listen, if if cities were wiped out, there would be some evidence that they were wiped out. And since there is none, the Bible isn't accurate historically. But then something happened. Archaeologists found a site of two cities, and they believe those cities were the ancient sites of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they continue to excavate and look at these sites, wouldn't you know that that they found over the ruins a layer of ash and sulfur. And so now scientists believe that a, a meteorite entered the Earth's atmosphere and exploded over that area and and laid waste to the cities. They may not uh, say it was God-caused, but doesn't that sound an awful light, lot like the, the, the biblical account of those cities? Or what about King David? King David is mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. Over a thousand times he's mentioned, and yet there, until recently, there was no historical evidence that King David existed. So again, skeptics said, listen, if King David was as prolific a man as is claimed in the Bible, there would be some evidence of him. No, there was no King David. He's a legend just to unite a people around, kind of like uh, King Arthur. But, but he didn't really exist. But then in 1993, at Tel Dan, they were doing excavation and they found an inscription that reads, the house of David. The first outside biblical reference to King David. Here's the amazing thing. That dates to nine, about 900 BC, which would be somewhere in the 75 to 100 years after the death of King David. So again, just because there hasn't been historical evidence outside the Bible doesn't mean it won't be found. Or think about the New Testament. If you've read the accounts of Jesus, right? He he spent a lot of time with fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And skeptics said, it's not accurate. Jesus couldn't be out on a boat with his 12 disciples. They didn't have boats of that size that could go out and be rowed and be sailed and hold 12, 13, 14, 15 adults. They didn't exist. That's a modern telling. They just interjected that into the Bible, it's, it, it's not accurate. But then in the mid 80s, during a severe drought in Israel, a couple of brothers were fishing along the, the shores and the banks of the Sea of Galilee and there buried in the mud, wouldn't you know what they found? The remains of a remarkably well-preserved boat. And as it was taken up and, and examined, they found that it dated to 2000 years ago. It was a boat that would have been around at the time of Jesus. And it could be rowed, it could be sailed, and it could hold up to 15 men. So again, just because it doesn't exist, hasn't been found, 
doesn't mean it won't be found. As a matter of fact, the headline isn't all these things because there's so many more we could talk about. The burial box of Caiaphas, the high priest, inscriptions about the Philistine empire that confirm names of leaders and cities that are recorded in the Bible. Inscriptions about Pontius Pilate, the fifth governor of uh, Rome over Judea. We could talk about all those things that have been found. But here's the headline. There has never been an archaeological archaeological discovery that has refuted a single biblical claim. If you look at them honestly, critically, and unbiasedly. Which leads us really to the biggest question that people have of all when it comes to the Bible. Not its historicity, not its accuracy. The question that so many people ask is this. Isn't the Bible full of contradictions? Isn't the Bible just, it, it, it just contradicts itself time and time and time and time again, specifically when it comes to the, the, the person of Jesus, what he claimed, what he did, what he said. There's a scholar, if you want to use that term, uh, by the name of Bart Ehrman. He has uh, been a loud voice trumpeting the contradictions of the Bible when it comes to Jesus over the last decade or two. And he makes all these wild claims about these contradictions. So let me give you an example of a couple of them. One is this. He'll say the, the crucifixion account in the gospel of Mark and Luke are completely different. In Luke, Jesus uh, is concerned about other people. He's concerned about the women, specifically his mother standing at the foot of the cross. He cries out to God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In Mark, he's in agony. He's in pain. He's in so much suffering and he almost doesn't even know why he's there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're cl clearly two different accounts and they don't line up. Or he says uh, about the divinity of Jesus. He says, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the earliest gospel accounts, Jesus never claims divinity. Only in John the Gospel of John, which was written later, does he claim divinity. So obviously that was added afterward. Now, let me just say, those are not contradictions. Those aren't, I, I, it frustrates me when someone trots things out like that and says it's a contradiction. So in the field of logic, in logical reasoning, there are things called logical fallacies. And one of them is known as the law of non-contradiction. So basically what that means is you cannot have A and non-A both be true at the same time. Now, I know I lost some of you. You're like A and non-A. Okay, so you, you cannot have two things that are opposite be true at the same time. You cannot say I'm sleeping and not sleeping and both be true at the same time. You cannot say the water is boiling and the water is not boiling and both be true at the same time. Now, I know some of you would say, well, if you look at the temperature in the exact right moment, you can actually say it's in a state of stasis. Okay, you, I think we understand the point, right? You, you can't have two truths that are contradictory, both be true at the same time. That's a contradiction. So if, Matthew, if the gospel of Mark says Jesus died on the cross and Luke says Jesus never died, he escaped, never died. That would be a contradiction. If one of the gospels said Jesus was born by the Virgin Mary and another says Jesus was never born. He was an ethereal spirit. He just descended and was full grown man who just showed up. That is a contradiction. But when 
one gospel, when Mark says Jesus was in agony and Luke says he was concerned for others, that is simply one giving a detail that the other one left out. Jesus could have been in agony and yet at the same time been concerned about someone else. I know people who've gone through horrific things and in the midst of it, they'll stop and look at me and say, Pastor, how are you doing? And I'll say, don't worry about me, I'm here for you. But in the midst of their suffering and agony, they care about someone else. Or Jesus claims of divinity. Okay, listen, Jesus may not explicitly claim divinity in the, book of, uh, in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and only in John. But in his trial before his crucifixion, when he's standing before the, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and they say, tell us, are you the son of God? And he says, it's as you say. And their response is blasphemy. He deserves to die. The reason they said blasphemy, he deserves to die, is because by taking on that term, he was equating himself to be equal with God. Otherwise, it's not blasphemy. I think the ancient Jews knew better what that term meant than we do. So Jesus may not have said, I am the Father and I are one, but he said, are you the Son of God? I am. When you see that term and it's ever used within the Hebrew speaker, it is saying, I am, I am. You would never say that about yourself unless you were claiming it. So those aren't contradictions. The Bible isn't full of contradictions. We just have to look at it and take a step back and realize there's, con there's consistency and continuity throughout the scriptures. And now I want to end with the last, probably the most um, impactful question that we ask about the Bible, and it's this. Why is the Bible so difficult to understand? I mean, I kind of just dismiss the Bible and brush it off because when I try and read the Bible, I don't understand the Bible. And you can tell me there's different translations. You can tell me it's historically accurate. The, the, the manuscript evidence is solid. And you can tell me it doesn't have contradictions, but I just don't get it. Well, let me just say, my personal opinion, I believe about 90% of the Bible is quite easy to understand. I believe it's pretty straightforward. I believe it, uh, it doesn't take a scholar to understand the majority of the Bible. So let me walk this out with just three verses. Here's one. It's in Ecclesiastes. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. So is there anyone who always does good and never sins? I think it's pretty straightforward, right? So when you say, oh man, that person thinks they're perfect. Well, they're not. People expect me to be perfect. We don't. I'm never going to mess up now that I'm a Christian. You will. So the Bible's pretty straightforward. What about this in Romans 10? If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I have to do a bunch of stuff in order to be saved, right? Yes, two things. Profess with your mouth, declare, not be ashamed. Say, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Jesus that the Bible says was, was crucified, was dead and buried, and three days later, later rose from the dead. We're gonna celebrate that the, the, and remember that on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. But do I believe those things? Do I believe it in my heart? And am I willing to declare it? Yes, then you're a Christian. You, you mean I don't have to read through the Bible every day, cover to cover? No. 
You mean I don't have to be at church every Sunday? No. You mean I don't have to do everything just right and never mess up? No. We, we grow in those things. You should be at church. You can be encouraged. You should read the Bible so you can be grounded in it. You should begin to see your life change and transform. But that's the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you after you're saved. Not before. I don't think that's difficult to understand. What about this one? If anyone is stealing, he must stop it and begin using those hands of his for honest work and give to others. So is it okay to steal? Okay, I think this is straightforward. (laughs) Is it okay to steal? No. Should you stop stealing? Should you get a job? Should you give to others? The Bible is not difficult to understand. The reason we, now listen, I I understand there are parts that are difficult. There are parts that are are written from a different cultural uh, customs and and background. And and I understand uh, different norms at the time, but most of the Bible is straightforward. The reason we claim that it's difficult is because when we grab hold of it, if we say, I get it, now we're responsible for it. And if we grab hold of it and we're responsible for it, it's going to change us at the deepest part of who we are. It's applying the Bible that we don't like. Most of the Bible, most of the Bible, most of the Bible is not difficult to understand. It's difficult to live out. And so what do we do? We play all kinds of games with it. Things like this. Reading something you don't like what it says. You talk about it with someone. You ask them what they think, and they say, I believe it means this. I'm fairly certain it means this. I mean, it says, stop stealing. Start working. Yeah, but that's your interpretation. I interpret that different. I have a different take on that. I mean, I'm not really stealing. I'm just not working, and I'm living off of government handouts. So it, what's the difference? I mean, that's because the Bible says work so that you have something to give, so that you're productive, so that you are able to uh, be a source of help and good and a contributor to society. Don't just take and take and take. But that's that's your, I have a different understanding of that. See, if the Bible simply becomes your personal interpretation, and we don't go back to that law of hermeneutics, you have to interpret things properly and with science and with steps and with processes, then the Bible becomes irrelevant because the Bible means nothing. It's all subjective to what you like and don't like. So you read the Bible and you don't like what it says about right, wrong, good, bad, moral, immoral, evil, righteous. You say, I just don't see it that way. And I change it. So the Bible says you're not to have sex outside of marriage. But you want to have sex outside of marriage. So you make it say that somehow it's okay for me to have sex outside of marriage. Or the Bible is plainly clear. You should not be in a a romantic relationship with someone who doesn't share your faith. But he gets me. He gets my heart. Oh, she lights up my life. And so somehow what's clear in the Bible is open to interpretation and suddenly becomes really unclear. Or the Bible makes it clear that you're to be generous 
and to support the work of the local church by giving your tithe, but you don't wanna tithe. You don't wanna give 10% of what comes into your hands back to God through the local church. And so you find somehow, some way to make the Bible say, you don't have to do that anymore. And so the Bible isn't difficult to understand. The Bible is difficult to live out because it will change you at the core of who you are. So I see this play out all the time in something like this. Someone is going through a time in life. In their life, some area in their life is broken, damaged, a relationship, a marriage, something with their children, some area in their, in their life, morally, their integrity, their words, they just have a hard time being honest. Their emotions are just angry and lashing out and they can't control those things. And, and it's broken and they know it's broken and they want it fixed because they don't like having this broken thing in their life. And so they turn to God and they turn to Christianity and they turn to the Bible and they come talk to a pastor or they seek a Christian counselor. And as they do those things, if those people are biblically informed, they start opening the word of God and saying, now let's apply what God says to this broken area of your life. But what happens is as soon as God's word starts rubbing up against what they want to do and the changes they don't wanna make because they wanna be fixed, they wanna be made whole, but they don't want to have to change. Then all of a sudden the Bible becomes really difficult, really confusing and really difficult to understand. So they dismiss the Bible because they don't want to change. And they make a game of it. Listen to me. Please, please, please ask hard, intellectual, probing questions about the Bible. Dig into it. Shine a light on it. Because if it's truth, truth is never afraid to be examined. But don't play games with it. Because if you do, You'll never change. You'll never be healed. You'll never become the person that God wants you to be. So I'm going to ask if you'd stand to your feet. Now, I don't know where you are in life, but maybe you're one of those people and you've been, you know you've been playing some games with the Bible. There's some things in your life, some areas that are broken that aren't working, but you've been playing games trying to make it say anything else it can say because you don't want it to say what it says because if it says what it says, you have to change who you are and you don't wanna change because you like you except the fact is you don't like you that much because part of you is broken. And so you're in this point of tension. And so you have to make a decision. Am I gonna play a game with the word of God? I don't think it says that. I don't like what it says. Or will you say the word of God is true? I am not standing over it. It stands over me. I am not gonna make it bend to my preferences, my hopes, my desires. I am going to bend my will to it. Because that is where life change happens. Can you trust the Bible? Absolutely. Is the Bible difficult to understand? Absolutely not. Is the Bible difficult to live out? Yes, it is. But if you're willing to walk it out, it will change your life for the better. I don't know anyone who has taken the Bible and living it out, not out of a legalistic, but in grace, and says, my life is worse for it. I've talked to people from every walk of life, 
businessmen, businesswomen, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, white collar, blue collar, you name it. I've talked to every walk of life. And if they are living out the Bible in grace, they all say to the person, my life is better as a result. My relationships are better. I have more peace. I have more settleness. I have more purpose. I have more joy. All those things that we want when our life is broken, but you have to decide, what am I gonna grab hold of? I wanna pray for you. And here's what I'm gonna ask. If you'd close your eyes and bow your heads, if you're one of those people and you say, I've been playing games with the Bible, and right where you are, just raise your hand. So I've been playing games and I don't want to play games anymore. I'm done. I'm done playing those games. I want to live out the Bible. If that's you, right where you are, just raise your hand. Just hold it high. Every eye closed, every head bowed. This is between you and God. God, I'm tired of playing games with what you said. I know what you said. I know how I'm supposed to live. I understand those things. But I've been just trying to do it my own way and, and wrap it up in spiritual garb. And I'm done with that. You don't want to do that anymore. If that's you, just raise your hand, hold it high. Just hold it high. Now here's what I'm going to ask. In just a moment, we're going to sing some songs. And as we do, I'm going to invite you to come forward. We're going to have prayer teams up over here on my left, your right, and on my right, your left. We're up here. And just come and let someone pray with you that this would be the day where you would begin to apply God's word. Heavenly Father, I ask you right now for those that raised their hands and for those that didn't, for those that want to live out your word better than they ever have before. God, who, those who are playing a game with your word, God, it doesn't matter. Would you give them the courage to step forward and say, God, change this in me. I know what your word says. I'm having a hard time living it out. God, change me. I know what your word says. I've been making a game of it. God, change me. Whatever it is, God, I'm praying right now your Holy Spirit would move. And that before we leave here today, you will have done a great work in our hearts, in our spirits, in our minds, and in our bodies. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Now come for prayer.